You are listening to a podcast from The National. Abraj, a cautionary tale. It's been a dramatic fall for what was one of the leading lights of the Middle East financial scene. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from The National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Ramadan Kareem to you all. Now, The National has been covering the Abraj scandal from New York, London and Abu Dhabi as our editorial team brings you the key developments. With me in the studio today is our business editor, Masood Darahli. Hi, Mustafa. Who himself has been producing some quite compelling investigative journalism into what happened at the failed private equity firm. You know, Abraj is, is, um, is a story that still hasn't sunk in in the minds of many people. And it's, um, it, in many ways, it's a lesson for, for all firms. Um, uh, it's about having the necessary checks and balances in place. Um, and that no no company's too big too big to really fail. Um, you know our our story um, basically reveals that in September 2017, about five months or so before the firm's collapse, and this was the largest private equity firm in the Middle East and and, and North Africa, uh, believed to to have managed as much as 14 billion dollars in assets. Um, you know, so five months before in September, um, whistleblower emails um, went out warning some investors not to invest in um, Fund Six, um, you know, which was supposed to raise as much as six billion dollars. Uh, um, specifically, one email on on September twenty with the subject line of Abraj Fund Six warning. You know, that email um, started off. Um, saying some friendly advice before committing to uh, the new Fund 6, do your diligence properly and and don't believe what you're told by the partners or what you see on the slides. It's all show. Um, Wow. Yeah. I mean, it it was, uh, you know, it's it's not every day that you you expect to see an email like that. Um, And, uh, you know, that email was then subsequently... um, forwarded um, from the uh, from an employee uh, of, of, of an investor in the fund um, to the Abraj founder, uh, Mr. Arif Negvi, and uh, Mark Bourgeois, who uh, was responsible for basically raising funds on behalf of Abraj in, in, the, in the U.S. And, um, and, you know, the email uh, basically also claimed that, you know, Abraj's investments in Pakistan, MENA, uh, in the MENA region, and in, in, in Turkey, that their valuations were, were not entirely um, true. And it, it went on to urge investors to carry out, you know, their own due diligence. Um, but surprisingly, um, the warnings were um, ignored uh, by a uh, um, main investor, uh, a big, I mean, a, a big investor. Um, which is called Hamilton Lane and um, which is supposed to basically be a gatekeeper, do due diligence and act in a kind of an advisory role to pension funds and other institutional investors. Um, And, you know, it decided that it was going to put in $100 into the fund. And as a result, other investors were, you know, thought it was okay and um, were encouraged and, uh, according to my sources, as much as 900 million then subsequently went into 
uh, into the fund as commitments. So no actual money went went into the fund, but um, you know commitments were made. So what happened was when news of the uh, health healthcare fund, when there was there were question marks um, about the misappropriation of, of, of funds in the healthcare fund specifically from investors like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and OPEC and the World Bank's IFC. Um, basically, Abraj was put in a position where it had to release um, the uh, investors that had committed about $3 billion out of the $6 billion of the uh, six fund of their commitments. So, you know, um, there's going to be moving forward uh, quite a lot uh, for investors to think about moving forward uh, as they consider who they put their money with and what questions they ask. I mean, those investors were let off the hook uh, because of, of the news that broke five months after those whistleblower emails, which you report on in, in, in your latest story this week. Um, but, you know, the whole saga has really made uh, made everyone stop and think who is looking at, at business and finance in this region, um, particularly because Mr. Nakvi, I mean, he built up, as, as you quite rightly say, a branch to the biggest um, private equity company in the region over 15 years, a decade and a half. Then when in February, as you mentioned, the, those investors started investigating what happened to their money in the healthcare fund, from February, things unraveled really fast. So you had, you had two separate examinations to the alleged misuse of money. Um, potential irregularities were found, were said to have been found beyond the healthcare fund. It was also suggested that money from the healthcare fund was being diverted elsewhere. There was potential discrepancies in the accounting in other areas. And so, so this all kicked off in February. By June, Abraj Holdings had filed for liquidation. That was really, really quick. And that was June 2018. And, and what are we now? We're almost a year later. And, 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 and more things are emerging. I mean, we also learned back then that they had commingled, basically used investor funds to cover the $95 million shortfall at the firm. Uh, there were other things that, that, that broke, other news. I mean, there was a default on a $100 million loan. There were bounced checks. I mean, we learned of exposure to Abraj by other companies, Air Arabia being most notable. Um, overall, it's been a pretty sorry tale. It, it is worth saying, though, that Mr. Nakvi has denied any wrongdoing and has done so from the start. And having said that, um, you know, of the latest twists this year, U.S. authorities disagree with him, as particularly the SEC. Um, so the U.S. authorities believe that Abraj inflated the valuations of investments in its funds by more than half a billion dollars. The SEC also accuses Mr. Nakvi of misusing more than $230 million of fund money. Now, he was arrested in Britain last month. He's potentially to be extradited to face fraud charges in New York. He's in a difficult spot, isn't he? Uh, yes, he is. I mean, um, you know, the UK court um, agreed to grant him bail for 15 million pounds um, as he fights, you know, extradition to the United States to face some serious, uh, you know, charges. I mean, being accused of, of, of you know, wire fraud is is, uh, is a very serious charge in the U.S. as well as the other charges that, that he faces. And, um, and you know, these sentences uh, can see Mr. Nagvi, uh, you know, in jail for up to 45 years. 
Um, but surprisingly, um, he hasn't been able to post bail. He's uh, still in jail. And, um, and he, you know, he's, he's going to fight extradition, which by some measures, uh, some estimates, sorry, um, it may take as, as much as two years. And, and who else is implicated with him at the moment? So a former managing partner um, by the name of Mustafa Abdelwadud, who has um, pleaded not guilty, um, and um, a gentleman by the name of Sev Vetivet Pillai, um, who is also out on bail in, in, in the UK. And I mean, going back to the the whistleblower emails, and and you know, we we have these three people arrested um, in connection with the Abraj scandal. Um, when the when the warning went out in September 2017, um, uh, that and that email was forwarded to Mr. Nakvi, um, you, you'd think it would have spooked him that these kind of statements, these kind of things, were going out in the market talking about his company. I mean, it's it's very hard to to, to guess if if you if you weren't there. Um, but what is apparent from from you know the subsequent actions is that um, you know the email was suspected to have come from a former Abraj employee um, from a Brazilian domain name uh, gorillamail.com. Um, you know another one came from from a Russian domain, and you know Mr. Nagvi took the initial one, which we. Um, um, uh, source uh, in our story, uh, um, and he basically subsequently forwarded that email to a number of his, of, of Abraj executives, um, basically saying, "This is doing the rounds out there. Can we try and figure out who this let go employee is?" So I mean, he's he, he's he sent this email. He he he's clearly worried about the email by by saying, "Let's figure out who it is." He wants to stop this in his tracks naturally. And, and, and it must have been to somewhat degree successful because ultimately that fund did get the commitments it needed. But in general, we have to step back and, and, and say, you know, this is a cautionary tale. So let's ask, you know, what lessons can be learned so far? Obviously, there's a lot more to probably we'll learn of this. But so far, you know, how does a fraudulent culture like that gain traction? This wasn't just about making up for bad investments. The allegations also include that some of the funds were used per, for personal well, for personal use. Um, it's also a pretty dramatic fall of fall from grace for Mr. Nakvi himself, who obviously cared about his reputation in the market, needed a good reputation uh, for Abraj to function properly. Um, I'll, I'll quote Adel Ali, the chief executive of Sharjah-based Air Arabia. He said that Abraj is version two of the Lehman Brothers collapse. That's, that's, it's a pretty big statement. And, and when, when you step back and you look at it, it's, you know, you wonder how, how did this happen? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is, it's not every day that the largest private equity fund, uh, you know, just, you know, crumbles overnight. Uh, I mean, it may seem like it happened over a year, but it also feels like it happened literally overnight. Um, how did it happen? I mean, by various accounts, I mean, when you speak to uh, a number of people, um, who are tremendously informed. Um, you know, one of the resounding criticisms is that Abraj did not have independent third-party administrators for all of its funds. Um, and that only changed after 2013. Now, why is that significant? Um, it's significant because administrators, and there's, you know, 
there's different layers to administration of a fund. Um, and it really depends on what they're hired to do. So at layer one, basically, um, you know, these administrators call up the limited partners, the people who have basically um, agreed to be investors uh, in a fund. And they say, you know, we found an investment. Can you please send over the money uh, that you committed to? Um, but that only existed after 2013. Um, and, you know, we're not privy, obviously, uh, to know um, what other layers, um, you know, those, the, the, the administrators after 2013 were, were uh, privy to themselves. Um, another thing is that, you know, Mr. Nekvi, you know, um, was considered as a, uh, by some as, a, you know, tremendously uh, um, uh, inclined to take decisions uh, by himself or uh, in conjunction with a very few select number of people, um, uh, which, you know, sidelined others. Um, and so there's issues of corporate governance, there's issues of transparency, um, that are at play here. And also there's the issue which is, you know, uh, come to light when you look at the indictment sheets um, in the U.S., which is inflating funds, the value of the funds, to be precise. Um, and, you know, the reason you do that is because the way private equity funds work is that um, they're structured in such a way, and each fund obviously is different, um, if they're if they're at a certain value, then you know the the, the fund manager can then um, collect their fees and and uh, uh, and so forth. Um, so these are the charges that the, these are the yeah. issues and the charges that are. At, so they at they core. they wanted to put themselves in a position to be able to earn more money than they they deserved than than their funds had actually earned. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know the, the this is this is really the the trust. I mean the tr the, the trust will 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 have broken down. Um, for a lot of investors looking at, at this region. And, and, and this is why, to a certain extent, it's going to drag on for a few years. I mean, also, as you, know, you point out, as, as Mr. Nakvi himself and he fights extradition to the U.S., that, that could take a while. Um, but, and, and so we, we're probably going to learn more as investigations from the legal proceedings um, move, up, move forward. Um, Masood Darhali, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, everyone can follow his coverage and the Nationals coverage of Abraj at the national.ae. Thanks, Masood. Thanks, Mustafa. Pleasure. So let's move on. Uh, Assistant Business Editor Kelsey Warner um, earlier spoke to Mahmoud Adi, who's the head of Hub 71. Now she hears about what he hopes for the new tech startup center in Abu Dhabi and what investors and entrepreneurs can expect from this space. He also tells us what he's learned personally as a founder and VC in the UAE. Let's hear the interview. Joining me in the studio is Mahmoud Adi, head of Hub 71, Abu Dhabi's new space for startups, venture capital, and innovation at Abu Dhabi Global Markets on Almaria Island. Mahmoud, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having it's me good here. Good to meet you. And you. Uh, just to start off, really basically, what is Abu Dhabi's Hub 71? Absolutely. So uh, the way that we have been thinking about Hub 71 is Abu Dhabi undertaking toward technology. Abu Dhabi vision is to place uh, or sorry, the Hub 71 vision is to place Abu Dhabi on the global map of technology. 
And if we look at Abu Dhabi investment in the technology, it has been amazing so far. We have basically invested in technology 15, 10 years ago since we started deploying capital in the semiconductor space. Then after that, we deployed capital with SoftBank Vision Fund. Mm -hmm. And most recently through Mubadala, we have offices in San Francisco and London focus on venture capital. So today we are thinking, how can we bring all of this back to tie it back in Abu Dhabi and make create value out of Abu Dhabi for the globe? I want to talk to you about what an ideal applicant looks like for Hub 71. Uh, so looking to September yes. when the applications open, and it'll be rolling applications, so open yes. at all times. But uh, who do you hope is attracted to Hub 71? We, we are trying to be sector agnostic, right? So at the end of the day, we believe that all technology um, has an application here in Abu Dhabi or Abu Dhabi can be used as a base for, for, for basically tapping into the wider MENA region or the global region from Abu Dhabi, right? So just to make sure we are clear, we are sector agnostic. That's number one. Number two, we're trying to focus on the early stage. So call it from seed to roughly um, A to B sort of kind of company, right? Because we believe that those are the company that they need most help and we have to be kind of out there to support them, right? Um, so my ideal candidate is within the kind of the two categories that I described earlier, the seed category and the emergent category. And the seed category, it is call it a team of two to five people mm -hmm. that are in their early stage of figuring out a product market fit. They raise some capital. So they raise call it $100,000 to $500,000. And now they are basically looking um, to, to take that product, either either the ME, MVP or they are an early product market fit and they are looking to kind of scale it um, uh, within with, within the region or outside, depends on their business model. On the emergent category, what I'm looking for is, is, is of course, a company that have raised substantial amount of capital, half a million dollar plus. Um, there are, of course, now more developed funct functions, right? And the, the team is bigger. So it's going to be, um, uh, call it, six to 25 people, right? Now, what what we are focused on in the, in, in, in the hub is to make sure that there is a, a proper or a significant technical capability presence in the hub, right? Mm -hmm. So in our conversation with some of the kind of early candidate, we were sort of kind of trying to figure out how can we make sure that there are highly technical, highly skilled mm -hmm. sort of kind of capabilities mm -hmm. that are within the hub. Now, what we're trying to solve for, and this is for the benefit of the entire community, is to kind of increase the density of the technical skill sets, right? So that is a product manager, that's our engineers, that are um, data scientists, right? And with that, we believe this, this kind of level of energy will create a cross-pollination of idea, help kind of companies problem solve better, and create a much more attractive environment to, to help the companies attract more talent from the global technology community. Mm -hmm. So a cyclical process and really getting Abu Dhabi into a knowledge-based economy as an identity and getting away from a lot of companies come here and open multiple offices as sales offices or, you know, as a marketing function to an Arab audience. Um, and so what you're talking about really is transitioning into, you know, getting the nerds out here a little bit, if I can say. <laughs> we love those nerds. <laughs> we love the nerds, right. Okay. <laughs> Attracting. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your personal experience in the UAE as um, a startup founder, as the founder of a venture capital firm. Yes. Um, 
you have a lot of experience on the UAE startup scene. Uh, you are the co-founder of Pure Harvest, which is growing crops in the desert using hydroponics. Yes. And then a few months after that, you founded uh, Shirook Investments in September of 2016. Okay. So last few years, uh, you've really dedicated your life to these early stage ventures with your own and in championing others. Uh, can you just talk about what have you learned about the UAE startup scene from these experiences? What have your takeaways yeah. been? What needs to be improved? Uh, what are you hoping to offer Ab 71 based on what you've learned personally? Yeah, no, th th thank you for, for, for asking this question. Um, uh, I, I think the people uh, who have I have been interacted with so sort of realize that um, the time that I spent in the U.S. in the Silicon Valley and at Stanford sort of kind of transformed Mahmoud to become uh, a believer in technology, right? So when I came back um, from the state, I built a conviction around technology and the power of technology to change community in a positive way, right? And uh, I, I sort of kind of became a firm believer that a lot of the uh, challenges that we face can be solved with technology, right? We can create a lot more opportunities for our own people. We can solve educational challenges, healthcare challenges, financial services, financial inclusion, and all of those, right? Um, and that was sort of kind of the seed for the, 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 the different initiative that you are talking about. Um, uh, Pure Harvest is an interesting example where uh, when we started that company um, uh, with, with my partners, we felt a lot of, we, we, we got a lot of rejections and we got a lot of doubts. That is, it is not easy to kind of build something like that here. Um, now, uh, of course, it's not easy to build a software company, yet to build a hardware company with a technology that is sort of kind of, you know. Uh, and, and what you're doing with Pure Harvest really is, I think, using hardware and technology to pull off basically a miracle in the desert, which is to grow vegetables of course. Um, in a sort of closed circuit environment that is environmentally sustainable Correct. and s only gets smarter the more it works out its how, how it works. Is that is that a okay characterization of what Pure Harvest so is doing? That, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great description of, of, of what the kind of the company is uh, have have done or have achieved, right? But I think I think what's uh, what's very interesting is how to tie back all that learning or that experience to the Hub Seventy One and all those difficult conversations where people were saying no, that's impossible. Exactly, and I think I think I think the, for me the learning is a couple of things, right? Number one is if you if you have a conviction around a business idea that is, is powered by technology, right? Uh, you're gonna face doubts, right? Because people sometimes they have fear from a change or they are not used to do something in the new way that you are trying to propose to them. Um, stick to your guts and, 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 and try to kind of learn from the feedback because look, even, even if you face rejection, there is some, some merit into what you are hearing. So learn from that and iterate on what you're trying to offer or iterate on your product and, and learn more and then come back, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it was sort of kind of interesting experience from that perspective. Also, one other thing that I learned is fundraising is not easy in this region. Um, and that's why uh, one of the things that I'm quite focused on in the, in the Hub 71 is how can we make sure that there are there is availability of capital around the ecosystem, mm -hmm. right? Um, because I'm a firm believer that uh, availability of capital um, create opportunities for entrepreneurs 
to sort of you know build more or try more right um uh, there is there is an interesting uh, kind of perspective that i share about uh, kind of the, the region ecosystem the kind of the regional ecosystem when you when you kind of face with a question like look we haven't seen much exits right there are two or three things um associated with that an exit market typically it is um, a 10 years result of what has been invested or or, or 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 basically the investment the investment activities that went into the ecosystem 10 years ago right mm-hmm. so of right. course what we are seeing today right is a result of what has a happened. decade worth of work exactly. and investment that happened 10 years ago and so it's it's harvesting the fruits of Absolutely. labor that's now kind of aged exactly exactly so th- so th- that is that is one one kind of interesting aspect the other interesting aspect that i share is because of the uh, of the kind of some of the funding gap that uh, the market kind of uh, kind of uh, well uh, the market sort of kind of observe or suffered from over mm-hmm. some time it's actually forced companies to sort of kind of exit earlier and leave ton of value on the table there's still or, a lot of growing to do before exactly before you go to the next level mm-hmm. right so i think i think that is why all, all those kind of learning um are, are things that personally i have touched some of them right and now when when i'm looking at the hubs of anyone is i'm always sort of kind of challenging myself how can we make sure we kind of build something that is founder friendly that is starting from the founder we're trying to solve founder problems rather than trying to come up with the problem that we think are the founders are thinking about and try to solve what you're looking to do is attract startups SMEs and entrepreneurs to hub 71 and so what i would like to know is um, what can those founders uh, expect out of hub 71 we have what we are calling it seed programs and the emergent program. For a company in the seed program, they will enjoy 100% um, uh, incentive program for their for the housing, for office space, as well as health insurance. Okay, so day one, you arrive in Abu Dhabi or you grew up in Abu Dhabi and you go to work in Abu Dhabi and your housing, healthcare, and office space are all paid for if you're a Hub 71 Resident. Incubatee or whatever you want (laughs) to. Resident. You're calling them residents. Absolutely. Okay. If you're a Hub 71 resident, those are the three incentives provided. And then from a funding perspective, from a licensing perspective, can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Just to put this in a perspective, we estimate this this, uh, incentive program to be roughly up to 800, 850,000 dirham per company, right? Um, uh, and if you are an emergent company, the second category that I talked about, you will enjoy 50% incentive program around those three different areas. Again, housing, health insurance, and office space. And we estimate this to be around 3.5 million dirham. So this is a significant amount of investment on those companies for zero equity. There is no equity in return for all those incentive program. Now, on the investment, what we basically are trying to do is to bring venture capital to be part of the ecosystem or the, the right way that I, I like to kind of describe it, we're trying to attract venture capital to be part of the ecosystem. And there are programs designed by Mubadala, programs de- designed by Adio that are um, at the sa- that, that, they, that are adjacent for the hub that are going to attract those venture capital to be part of the ecosystem. Okay. So uh, if a startup founder wants to access venture capital, uh, as a resident of Hub 71, how do, how would they go about doing that? And then, uh, kind of, 
what is the timing? What is the timeline? What are the opportunities for events around maybe pitch nights yeah. or, or that kind of thing? So let's just start by the kind of the application process for the hub to become a resident of the hub. Now, sure. now, now just to make sure it's kind of clear for uh, for our listener, um, the community itself is 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 a close community. We're going to have residents as well as other companies that are within the ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. So people who are within 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 the wider Abu Dhabi, within the wider UAE and region, they definitely can come and, and be part of the ecosystem. But for the resident, there is an application process that is is, is put out by the hub. It's going to go public um, uh, in September. Okay. And it's going to be on rollover basis, basically. So companies or startups can come and apply to that. Now, once a company is, is a hub uh, 71 resident, we would have a team within the hub team that's focused on supporting the, te- the supporting the startup to be successful. I'm calling that team the founder of success. It is one of the sort of kind of initiative focused around helping startup in three different angles. We know that startup all the time. Sorry, it's called what again? Run that founder button. success function. Found- founder success function. Exactly. Got it. Okay. So a team that is only what they are doing is thinking about the founders, mm-hmm. thinking about our resident, mm-hmm. and how can they make them more successful, right? It's um, It kind of reminds me of the uh, resident assistant program when you're in college, on college campuses, when you have an RA in your dorm who ensures... <laughs> College success. So it's they're ensuring that uh, they have guidance through that experience. Absolutely. And look, this is this is uh, this is going to be an, an opportunity for the startup to tap into. It, it is not compulsory that people go through it, mm-hmm. but we know that every kind of company they look for three things, like typically, right? They're looking for help in their kind of funding strategy. They need help with their market access strategy, um, or introductions um, to get access to market as well as you know like talent talent acquisition and all of those right mm-hmm. so the team is being built around how can they support those startups to tackle those three okay so what are the qualifications for the success team who are you sort of looking for to help shepherd these uh, that's a great question oh, thank you <laughs> so um, uh, we we believe that there are certain key uh, core skills that are transferable from you know one company to another company or from one startup to another startup. So we are looking for people who actually work in a scaling up a startup uh, or a technology companies within the region. There are a few names or or now multiple names that came landed in the UAE or are UAE grown that expanded in the wider region. So they went to. X country, they landed, they launched the company, then they went to another country and they landed and they launched. And typically those type of teams or that type of person who kind of led what we call them the launcher function mm-hmm. is a person who would have pretty much kind of the core skill set around those three elements. Uh, the region's really starting to be identified as a place of opportunity given, you know, Souk being acquired by Amazon. Mm-hmm. Namshu was picked up by Imran Malls fairly recently. And then, of course, the highest profile uh, Uber nabbing Kareem for $3.1 billion. Uh, what is the signal to you in terms of what sectors are gaining at- attention and what sectors? I know you said you were sector agnostic, but yes. um, I know that you will have accelerators yeah. in place at Hub71 where you'll be focusing on certain sectors. So. Let's talk about what those sectors are and what problems they're maybe solving for in the UAE. So uh, an interesting fact, we launched on March 24th 
Kareem got acquired on March 25th. Yes, it was a busy news week here. <laughs> at the, not to make this about me, but... <laughs> it was a great It was a great week. It was a great, great week for the UAE, yes. Absolutely. I wanted to talk about you are you are bringing specific accelerators into Hub 71 that are specific to there are sector specific. So can you just talk about what those are and what they're solving for? Absolutely. Um, uh, Before I go there, um, I think you asked about the kind of the different uh, uptake in the region or what sort of sector that we have seen there is attraction to. Right. Um, uh, I I think if you look at the at, at the examples that you gave. Uh, definitely there is an element of a platform creation, right? Um, uh, whenever there is a platform, there's a significant value. Um, of course, uh, like building something or building a company that is operational in, in 10 or 20 different cities or 50 different cities around around MENA region is, is a significant challenge, but at the same time can create a significant business opportunity and become very sticky. Um, and, and we have seen that in, 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 the, in some of the examples that you talked about. Uh, on the accelerator side, we are, uh, we are very excited to actually announce today that uh, Techstar is joining our family. Techstars, yes. Yes, Techstars from, from Colorado, U.S. <laughs> um, uh, Starburst is also joining our family and building on already an existing acceleration community that we have through plug and play in, in today in our in our uh, space. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are very excited to have those three accelerators. Yeah, I mean, um, those are three fairly big names in the startup space. So can you talk about what each of them will be offering to founders? Absolutely. So, uh, of course, each each one of the of the program have its own specific details. I will not get into that. But in general, an accelerator is, is a program that is from call it 10 to 12 to 13 weeks that's designed on bringing a company and and help them uh, think about their business model, think about about how they sort of kind of uh, take their MVP to the market, go to market strategy, talent acquisition, um, uh, fundraising and all of that in very sort of kind of intensive collaborative environment. Now, uh, to go back to the, those different accelerators that we have, um, uh, Techstars is, 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 is one of the largest programs or acceleration program globally. Uh, very excited to have them. Uh, Starburst is a program that is focused on, on aviation and aerospace. Uh, yeah. Plug and play is, is, is today is focused on fintech. So we already started to kind of see different sector emergings emerging within the the accelerator offering that gonna be part of the of, of the hub. Now the beautiful things is those accelerator gonna create a, a stream of of, of uh, companies that will join the hub after graduation um, uh, and and become and hopefully most of them or all of them will call Abu Dhabi their new home. Oh, that is okay. So you go in and you're accelerated through Techstars or you're accelerated through Starburst. You're a fintech. You're a hopeful fintech outfit. You're a hopeful uh, aerospace company, and you are then a successful applicant to become a Hub Seventy One resident following the program. Absolutely, that is part of our our pipeline creation. That's exciting. Um, you know, with more attention in the region on the potential of startups uh, comes competition. And, uh, you know, there are other hubs springing up in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in Bahrain, down the road in Dubai. I just wonder, how is Hub 71 differentiating itself within, you know, it's not a crowded marketplace by any means. There's plenty of room. Exactly. Uh, but how... <laughs> you answered yourself. <laughs> I did. <laughs> 
But how is Hub 71 uh, really going to attract to Abu Dhabi? Talking about Hub 71 specifically, we believe we sort of, in the design thinking of the hub, we sort of kind of approach it very comprehensively um, uh, from uh, talking to founders on the ground, talking to VCs on the ground, and coming up with the programs that we believe are, are, are value adding directly in a very tangible, direct way to all the market participant, right? Um, uh, again, we appreciate all the effort and we're looking forward to work with all of them, right? Um, we believe that the region needs a lot more, mm-hmm. right? Um, so uh, to put things in perspective, last year roughly around 900, uh, $900 million went into the ecosystem. Let's call it a billion dollar. In the U.S. alone, more than $100 billion went into the ecosystem. So we are almost 1% or less than 1% to, uh, from funding perspective, right? So there is a long way to go, but to give you a more uh, exciting news, um, uh, the funding that went into the ecosystem five years ago was around $100, $100 million. So mm-hmm. we already 10x mm-hmm. um, uh, increase. If we take the same projection, we will get there hopefully very soon. That was Mahmoud Adi, the head of Hub71, talking to Kelsey Warner, assistant business editor. That has been an episode of the Business Extra podcast. All that remains is to thank Kevin Jeffers, our producer, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time.